you please turn in your copies of your scriptures to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We are almost to the end of this chapter in the Sermon on the Mount and our study on kingdom living on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm very sorry I'm going to have to leave you with a cliffhanger this morning. We're not going to get to verse 48. We'll do that next week. Passage of study this morning will be Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, as we look at costly love. This is God's holy, authoritative, inerrant, inspired word to us. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? These are the words of our Lord. May he add his blessings to it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning needy. Needy of your grace. Needing to hear from the word of your truth. So we pray the Holy Spirit. Open our minds. Open our ears, our hearts, our eyes so that we may see wonderful things here in the words of Jesus. For it is his name that we pray. Amen. Don't let anyone tell you that Christianity is easy. Because it's not. If you say you're going to be a follower of Christ, then you have automatically put yourself in a position of hard life. A very difficult journey, a journey in which King Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, calls us to do some very hard things. And over the last several weeks, we have looked at this call to do hard things, this difficult call of discipleship. Last week, we saw where our Lord taught us to die to ourselves to put aside your personal rights, your personal feelings of retaliation or, or, or whatever it may be, and to, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give to those in need. These are the ways that our Lord taught us when it comes to following Him. This is what a follower of Christ looks like. He or she does these things. And now when we think that our Lord could not possibly go any further when it comes to doing hard things and to living this hard life of discipleship, he goes even more radical. And he says, disciples are to love their enemies. Love your enemies. This passage here in Matthew's gospel chapter 5 is the 
the six and, and the final uh, of the examples of the illustrations that our Lord has been giving us as he has expounded upon what he taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. And so he goes through six different illustrations, six different examples of what this looks like, what this righteousness is supposed to be that, that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so here we have the last of those examples. And Jesus' point was to show us that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill every jot and tittle. Our Lord is showing us that the law is very important in the life of the believer. But it must be interpreted as he interprets it. It must be applied to our lives as he applies it. And he is going to do that here. So in this passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, Jesus is digging deeper and deeper into what it means to be a Christian. And here he gives us, some say, the ultimate principle of kingdom living. A Christian is to be loving like their heavenly father. A Christian is to be loving like their heavenly father. And so for us to understand this passage, for us to understand what Jesus means here, we're going to follow the same paradigm that we have the last five weeks and look at the teaching of the law, the teaching of the Pharisees, and the authoritative teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the first is the teaching of the Old Testament law. If you look there in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To begin, it's important to note that verse 43 is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. We have seen this before in the other examples that Jesus has given us here, but what he is quoting is a a twisted version of what the Old Testament law taught. This was the, the perversion taught by the Pharisees. However, part of this statement that he says you have heard that it said is found in the Old Testament, and that is the command to love your neighbor. That is absolutely in the Bible and in the Old Testament. We first see this in Leviticus chapter 19, and you think Leviticus Isn't that about rules and regulations and sacrifices and all that kind of stuff? Well, yes, but there's a lot of good news there, too. There's a lot to say about kingdom living. And in fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, we have a very significant passage where Yahweh God is teaching what kingdom living is to look like for his people. And one of the principles, one of the key principles... For Yahweh's people, is that they're to love their neighbor. And what loving your neighbor looks like is actually listed in that chapter. It's caring for the poor. It's telling the truth, not oppressing anyone. The list is quite extensive when it comes to what it looks like in loving your neighbor. And here we found that principle in the Old Testament. But also in the New Testament. Jesus reiterates this teaching, and he sums up all the law and all the prophets in Matthew chapter 22 when he states that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God 
And he says, then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, in fact, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So at the heart of the Bible's teaching is this command, is this duty for a follower of Christ, this kingdom principle that God's people are to love their neighbors. And we acknowledge that this part of what was said is good. We are to love our neighbor. But who is our neighbor? Well, let's look at the false teaching of the Pharisees. In verse 43, we've already looked at their perversion of this law where they added, and you are to hate your enemy. This teaching of the Pharisees is not biblical. They perverted, they changed the law, they added, hate your enemy. And their reasoning seemed to be that God commands us, yes, to love our neighbor, but then that must mean that we are to hate our enemy. So we love our neighbor and hate our enemy. That must be what God was teaching, they would say. But we see in other areas of Scripture, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 shows that Jesus has a much more broader definition of who our neighbor is than the Pharisees taught. As we saw a Samaritan, one who was good for nothing, one for whom the Jews showed extreme prejudice and racism toward, came and helped that one man suffering in the ditch. The Pharisees deliberately narrowed their definition of love, and they narrowed their definition of who their neighbor, in fact, was. The Pharisees argued, my neighbor, my neighbor is one of my own people, a fellow Jew, and then everyone else I am to hate. I'm just to love my own race. They missed the point, didn't they? They totally ignored the teaching of the Old Testament law. They ignored the promise made to Abraham that his nation was to be a blessing to all nations. They ignored the teaching of Moses where he directly charged them to love the poor, to love the neighbor, to, to love the foreigner within their gates. And they even took it further. They would even hate their own people who didn't think like them. The law to love your neighbor was missed by them. Because this law to love your neighbor was in place to restrain hatred toward others, not justify hate toward anyone whom we would claim not to be our neighbor. But we may think about the Pharisees' argument here for a little bit. Think about it. It's, it's not totally illogical, is it? Doesn't it seem that the Bible commands us to pray for and to call down judgment on our enemies? What about God's judgment of the nations in the Old Testament history? What, what about the imprecatory psalms where you see the psalmist praying for judgment on enemies and on specific people. Weren't the Pharisees simply following the example set forth in the Old Testament to hate their enemies? 
Well, this is where careful Bible study and careful exegesis is very important. Because in these situations and in these circumstances where you see the call for judgment on enemies, they are always matters of judicial importance and never personal or individual vendettas. They were always seen, in a sense, on a national scale. They were seen from Yahweh's eyes, not man's eyes. These situations of judgment, calling down wrath upon enemies, they have to do with God's justice. They have to do with God's enemies, not our own personal quarrels and quibbles with people we just don't like. The judgment of enemies was for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. So the Pharisees were making a gross inference that they were in fact commanded to hate their enemies, which they would define their enemies as really just those that disagreed with them, or those who didn't dress like them, or those who didn't grow up in the same neighborhood of them, or those who cheered for a different team than them. Sound familiar? Does that prejudice ring true in your your own life? It's important to note that in the Bible, hatred and judgment are two different things. God judges his enemies. He does judge, and he will judge his enemies. But he never commands his people to hate anyone. Never. God says over and over, I hate evil. I hate this injustice. But he never says, you go and hate. Never. And we must get that right. The Pharisees got it wrong. So that brings us to the teaching of our Lord in verses 44 through 47. Because Jesus says, But I say to you, here it is. Here's the commandment. Here's the kingdom principle. Here's how you're to live your lives. Here's how what a child of the king looks like. And it brings us to some of the hardest, most difficult teaching in the New Testament. Because I want to be a Pharisee. I want to hate my enemies, and I want to be justified in my hate. That's the truth of my sinful heart. And here Jesus totally convicts me and pierces my heart, and I hope yours as well. Because he has a teaching for us. He has a better way. He has a kingdom principle for kingdom living. And this is what we are to be like in his kingdom. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Most of us like to assume and believe that we live good Christian lives. (laughs) We go to church. We provide for our families. We give our kids a good education. We serve in the community and on and on and on. But here Jesus calls us to something so radical when it comes to kingdom living and 
and living the Christian life that it makes us downright uncomfortable. I mean, you're not going to come to one of my Bible studies or one of my prayer times and hear me praying for ISIS over and over and over and over. Because I don't want to do that. (laughs) It's not in my nature. But Jesus very authoritatively, very matter-of-factly states, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Why would Jesus call us to do something like this? Why? Why would he ask us to do something so hard? Why would he ask us to do something that goes against the very core of our being? I don't want to love my enemy, and I sure don't want to pray for them, so why would a loving God ask me to do something so hard? Well, here it is. And he answers this question for us. Jesus calls his disciples, he calls his followers to love their enemies because this is what a son of God does. Following Christ is hard. And if you want to be a son or a daughter of your heavenly father, then what you must do is love your enemy. One of the greatest privileges that is bestowed upon a believer, specifically found for us in the New Testament, is our adoption. I mean, what a picture we had this morning. It was a sense that we had just adopted a bunch of people into our family. And that's what the Lord God does. Adoption is the act of God's free grace by which we become his sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges of belonging to him. And as his children, we're called to do hard hard things. Yes, but more important, we are called to be like our heavenly father. We're called to love as he does. This is what it means to be a child of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Here our Lord tells us to love our enemies because, he says, That is exactly what God does. Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You may notice here in verse 44 where it says, love your enemies. The Greek word for the word in our English Bibles, love, is the word you've heard before, agape. Agape is one of the four words used in the Greek language for love. And agape love is is not a love of sentimentality. Oh, I love him. Agape love is, is concrete love. Agape love is love in action. It, agape love is love that demonstrates this, this principle that we studied last week. We are to die to self and live for God because this is what he did for us. Agape love is summed up very nicely for us in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he proved his love. He gave his one and only son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. 
our definition of love and the way that we should demonstrate love is to be guided by agape love, which is divine love, not human love. We are to love as our Heavenly Father calls us to love. Now, it is important for us to note that here in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture that God is not calling us to be BFF with our enemies. Love is not the same thing as liking. Jesus is not calling his disciples to go on a picnic with their enemies. Jesus is calling us to love them in a way that God shows love to them. And so he gives us examples. We see in verse 45. Only God the Father can give us the motivation and the impetus to love our enemies. So here we see that God demonstrates a principle that the theologians call common grace. In verse 45, you see that God the Father gives common grace every day for He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So common grace here is God's favor that he bestows commonly to all mankind without distinction. Common grace is divine love that is indiscriminate toward all men, good or bad. God didn't cause the sun to come up this morning just for those who went to church. God is not going to send rain to water the earth and to feed the crops for just the Christians. He commonly bestows his grace upon all mankind. Important to note, though, that common grace is not the same as the saving love that enables men to repent and believe in the gospel. But it is grace shown to all mankind. It's it's not the gifts of salvation that he gives to all mankind, but the gifts of creation, like the rain, the sun, the clean air that we breathe. God's common grace is bestowed bestowed upon all mankind every day in, in many ways. And Jesus says, we are to love our enemies. In this way, God shows grace and care to all of humanity, and we are to do the same. Another example that Jesus gives here can be found in verse 46. Christians are called to be different in the way that we show love to the world. We're not just to love those that love us. Jesus says even the tax collectors, those who are absolutely hated by the Jews because of their practices of extortion, even they love those who love them. Even they are nice to those who are nice to them. But Jesus says a kingdom-minded follower of Christ is to show an even greater love toward their enemies. More than just mere niceties. So it would be easy to go up to that tax collector and just 
throw your tax money in his face and say, here, take it. And I know a lot of us are going to want to do that over the next few months. But perhaps the more radical way would be, here's my tax money. How are you today? How's your family? And that's not what we want to do. But that's the radical, even greater love that we are to show toward our enemies. So here we see that according to Jesus and according to scriptures, that our neighbor, by God's definition, includes our enemies. Someone is our neighbor simply because they are a fellow human being. We are to show love and care for them as God does. How do we show the love of God toward our enemies? Well, Jesus gives us some very practical steps here. He calls us in verse 44 to pray for them. One of the, pray for your enemies. One of the greatest examples that I can think of this is the, the pastor, the theologian, the prophet, the spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and a theologian and great thinker during the height of the reign of Nazi Germany. And so he wrote often about his concern and even disdain for the Nazis and for their ill treatment of their enemies. But at the same time, Bonhoeffer also wrote about the supreme command to pray for those who persecute you. And here's what he wrote. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. A man who was persecuted, who was in fact killed by the Nazis, was calling calling his fellow believers to stand side by side with the Nazis and pray for them. Jesus also prayed for his enemies, did he not? He prayed for them as he was being tormented and hung on a cross. And John Stott says, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Second thing that Jesus alludes to here, and he did in other passages, is we are to bless them. We are to bless our enemies. Instead of retaliating, as we looked at last week, instead of retaliating when our enemies are seeking to do us harm, we call down God's blessings upon them. It's a difficult thing to do. A third way our Lord gives us here to how we can show God's love to our enemies is we can do good to them. We can do good to them. You know, we are called to be kind to everyone. That is, that is a command. That is a, a Christian tenet. We're to be kind toward everyone. Being a Christian doesn't give you permission to be mean and ugly toward non-Christians. 
because they don't think like you or act like you or believe like you. We're called to be kind to all. We're, we're called to treat others with loving affection. We're called to practice the golden rule, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We're not merely to do the same as the non-believers and just greet those who greet you, is what he says. We're to do even more. You greet everyone in the name of the Lord, not just your friends, not just believers, but show a love that is even greater toward those who are non-believers and who you may not consider to be your neighbors. I went to lunch this past week with someone I'm pretty sure was maybe not following the Lord. And I, and I, and I kind of wanted to maybe just skip over blessing the food. I kind of wanted to maybe just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to bother this guy. But I said, can I pray? And so we prayed. Because we should show love to all. We should show a love that is even greater. And so I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you claim to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Christ, if you are his disciples, then you should be downright weird. Weird. Where people will look at you and look at your life. Why are you acting that way? Why do you believe that? The world should look at your Christ-like actions and want to know why are you doing this and that respect? In, with your life. And here's your response. I've got, I've got a great response when someone asks you that. Because I'm trying to be like my father. This is the way he taught me. Maybe you're being called this morning to love an enemy. Maybe you're convicted just like I have been. You're just getting convicted now. I've been convicted all week. <laughs> all week. Maybe you're being called this morning to love an enemy. Maybe a neighbor that you just cannot stand. If that neighbor makes one more comment about my yard, I'm going to explode. Maybe, maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a sibling that you have a really strained relationship with. Maybe it's a sibling that it would not be a stretch for you to say, I hate them. Maybe it's a coworker or an old boss that you're not on good terms with because you're absolutely convinced that that person's goal in life is to make you miserable. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a classmate for you students or a teacher that you feel is your enemy. I ask you this morning, how would Jesus have you demonstrate costly love to them? How would Jesus have you demonstrate love to this person or persons that it will actually cost you something if you show them biblical love? Because it might cost you your reputation. And it will certainly cost you the bitterness and pride that you 
harbor within your heart. It might cost you your reputation. You will have to die to self. We must demonstrate this costly love because that's what Christ calls us to do. D.A. Carson says, Jesus' disciples must live and love in a way that is superior to the patterns around them. We must live and love in a way that is superior to the patterns that are around us. Our standard of love toward our enemies that Jesus is calling us to here is, is not without precedent. Because Jesus does not call us to do something for which he is not willing to do himself. He demonstrates for us what this costly love looks like. God demonstrated his perfect love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, We were by nature... Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's like the worst thing I could think of in the Bible that for, for people. You're a child of wrath? And that's what he says, we were all like that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We cannot heed this call to love our enemies unless we first see that we were once God's enemies too. You get that? We cannot heed this call from our Lord to to love our enemies unless you first see that, that you, apart from Christ, you were an enemy of God. We were children of wrath. We rebelled against his fatherly love and grace toward us. Yet Christ still died for us. We who were once enemies of God are now his children. So brothers and sisters, see this morning the call from our Lord. He says we're to love our enemies, we're to pray for them so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. The gospel is the reason we can love our enemies. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there we see it again. It it always comes back to the gospel. That Jesus is is showing us and taking us deeper and deeper into the knowledge of the gospel. And here we see that a changed heart and a changed life is one that loves their enemy. And Lord, we freely confess to you this morning, we don't want to do it. We do not want to love our enemy and we do not want to pray for them. Yet we see that there is a reason, there is motivation for us. And that is because of your great love with which you loved us. So help us to see the gospel more clearly this morning. 
that this call for us to love our enemies is a reflection of your great love for us in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray.